So if you are listening to this program on iTunes, uh, please consider supporting CSP with a donation so we can continue to bring great programs to our community here in Orange County and to you out there somewhere in the world. Just go to www.occsp.org and you'll find a donation button. Thank you very much. Our topic for today as we finish our Jewish history, Jewish thought, a journey through space and time again is three Zionist thinkers, their differing visions of a Jewish state with Professor David Ruderman, and thank you for coming. All right, back again. <clears throat> um, it just feels like I've, I've found my normal way of doing things and it's gonna come to an end and I'm sort of just used to getting up here and this is the second or the third or the fourth part and so on and go on. <clears throat> but all good things come to an end and it's been very good for me and I hope for you too. Um, Gil Troy was in Young Judea with me. I, I have all kinds of connections with people, so uh, I know Gil quite well. Um, and um, I won't mention the name of the person next year, but he is very much like a, an, a son to me. So I mean, uh, you're, you're gonna get a little bit of uh, rudiment, unfortunately, next year as well. But um, um, in any case, I won't say any more about that. So um, a number of you were, how many of you were at the lecture last night? Oh wow, a whole bunch. Okay, so that's good because I think um, this lecture is connected with that lecture and also with tonight. Um, we are going to raise issues about Zionism. We did already in terms of Martin Buber's Zionism, um, his unpopularity because of that uh, position that he took. Um, I actually do teach uh, Zionist thought even though I don't write on this. I grew up in the Zionist youth movement uh, from the age of 17. I was reading the Bible of Zionist thought, which is, I've mentioned it already, uh, Arthur Hertzberg's The Zionist Idea. If you own that book, it's a very rich book still. It was published in 1953. Arthur was a, uh, a well-known rabbi in Englewood, New Jersey, uh, who also taught at Columbia University. I actually sat through a course of his on modern Jewish thought uh, very early in my career. Um, and the whole course was about who I knew this one and I knew this one and I had lunch with this one. Um, but I, I, he was also very stimulating and original thinker. And the essay uh, in the beginning of the, that book is really valuable if you're interested in the history of Zionist thought. It still is relevant until today. And what he does is to anthologize, oh, at least 100 uh, Zionist thinkers from every walk of life, um, and it is really a remarkable text to use if you are uh, to enter into that subject. So I'm gonna give you a little bit of a piece of that today. Uh, in my Modern Jewish Thought course, uh, the one that is also a part of the great teaching uh, courses, um, I spend a, a considerable amount of time on Zionism as well. Um, it is, uh, it could be, I, I, I don't plan on making it a minefield in terms of talking about present day realities and, uh, and dealing with all kinds of, so I'm not gonna talk about my own views, they really are irrelevant, uh, nor do I wanna relate uh, to our present conditions, although I do want this material to be relevant in understanding our present condition. In other words, I still wanna stay in the historical past, but I want you to draw the implications of what this means for today. So let me say just a couple of quick words about Zionists, Zionism, uh, historically that is. 
Uh, and then to, uh, the, the fact that I've chosen these particular speakers, I have to mention a few others in passing, but I, I've chosen three that I don't think get the kind of coverage that they deserve. Maybe the first, the Chada'am is quite well known, uh, but I bet most of you have not really studied Jacob Klatskin or considered Louis Brandeis as a Zionist thinker. I mean, you obviously know who he is um, in terms of uh, his history on the court and his place within American legal thought. Uh, um, but I, I would like to present them because I think they deal with certain issues that we are still dealing with. So uh, again, I'm, I'm playing a balancing act here. I want to talk about the present without talking about the present, if you get what I mean. Um, but I want you to draw your own conclusions rather than me telling uh, them what they are. All right, so let me begin. If we are to place Zionism within the context of modern Jewish thought, most would begin uh, in the second half of the 19th century. The first half of the 19th century might be characterized by the attempt of the Haskalah, the Enlightenment, uh, uh, and the beginning of various ideologies of Judaism. We spoke about two of them in our lectures, uh, Reform Judaism, the Orthodox Judaism, uh, Conservative Judaism, and so on. In all cases, in the first half of the 19th century, particularly in Germany where we can locate many of these ideological streams. There is an attempt to become part and parcel of Jewish society, of, of, of non-Jewish society, of, of European society. In other words, the first half of the 19th century might be characterized as a process of attempting to integrate, to acculturate, to assimilate. Also to deal with the challenges that assimilation and acculturation brought about. But the hope and promise of Western culture is that now, with emancipation of the Jew, the Jew can take his rightful place within the larger culture of European civilization. Of course, there were differences between the benefactors, or those who were granting emancipation, and those who received them. Quite often, many of those uh, countries or uh, states that gave Jews rights we're assuming that this would be the final blow to their Jewish identity. They would assimilate, they would acculturate, they would become like everyone else. From the perspective of the Jewish receivers on the end, they hope to modernize, perhaps to raise their culture to the level that would be appreciated by the, the majority as a whole, but somehow to preserve their distinct identity as Jews. And thus one could argue that the various ideologies of Judaism that emerged in the 19th century were all attempts to somehow find that right path, that golden means by which one can be emancipated and at the same time one can retain one's Jewishness. Adam Ba'orel, by Adam, Adam Ba'orel, that's Okay, you, you took the words out of my mouth. Maybe we should have you give the lecture on Adam. This is your Torah, right? Uh, okay, in any, in any case, uh, he's anticipating where I'm going, but I haven't even got to a Haram yet. So uh, clearly, um, and, and, and also the, the, the essay, David, Abdut uh, Betocherut. Do you know that essay by Haram? So that's really what's, what, he, what he criticizes about this process in the first half of the 19th century. By the end of the 19th century, Beginning in 1840, I would say, is a symbolic beginning of this, the Damascus blood libel, uh, which I did mention also in the course of my lectures. Um, and uh, the reason I mention that, because in the same year, one of the early precursors of Zionist thought, Moses Hess, writes an essay called Rome and Jerusalem. 
which is a response to the Damascus blood libel, in which he argues already for a kind of Jewish state, for a Jewish existence, to remove the Jews, to fight anti-Semitism, and so on and so forth. Um, by the second half of the 19th century, most of the dreams of integration, of finding this balancing act correct, have disappeared. And what emerges both in Western Europe and in Eastern Europe is the rise of anti-Semitism, the rise of exclusive nationalist ideologies, and the feeling on the part of the Jews that things are not going well and that what rights they had attained at the end of the 18th and early 19th century were now withering away. This call for radical solutions to Jewish life. And here, of course, I'm oversimplifying, but nevertheless, uh, in a few minutes, I can't do better than that. There are three basic approaches to dealing with the radical situation and the ultimate conclusion that Jews aren't going to fit in as they had hoped and planned. There was something wrong with all of the rights and privileges and all of the promises of the first half of the century by the second half, uh, it seemed to be exploding. Political powers, with, uh, political parties with anti-Semitic agendas, uh, changing economic and social scenes. Uh, anti-Semitism was a problem all over. Uh, and it was reflected, of course, in the Dreyfus Affair uh, in France. It was reflected in the pogroms of 1881, 1882. These are all critical dates uh, in the history of Zionist thought. In 1881-82, Leon Pinsker wrote his famous essay, Auto-Emancipation. Uh, a assimilated intellectual who was clearly distraught at the fact that the same intellectuals that had been supporting the Jews or supposedly were offering the Jews a new promise, socialists, communists, and so on, were now turning their backs and allowing Jews to be destroyed. 1881 and 82 is a critical year in the, in, in the hope and aspirations of Jews now being dashed uh, after this period in Eastern Europe. And this is exactly when Pinsker writes his essay, Auto-Emancipation. I love to teach that essay to black audiences because it is indeed also uh, they simply read the words and they see it's about themselves. It's about their own dreams uh, as they try to gain liberation with an American context. Auto-emancipation means we ourselves have to pick ourselves up from, the, from, uh, from, the, from, our, uh, from this low position and somehow to create a new reality for ourselves. Um, a very, very interesting essay in the history of Jewish thought. And going over back to the West um, in 1894, the Dreyfus Affair the maligning of a Jew, uh, of an officer uh, who was accused un unfairly uh, because he was a Jew. Uh, and Emile Zola's J'accuse, this famous essay, which he accuses France, liberty, equality, fraternity, how could you now turn against one of your minorities? And at this point, a uh, newspaper man named Theodore Herzl, covering the Dreyfus Affair, and, and, and in 1895, a year later, writing uh, his Altneuland, uh, a kind of novel about what a Jewish state might look like, a remarkable text, uh, and of course, the Jewish state, which became the manifesto of the Zionist movement. So Zionism is clearly one res radical response. In other words, the ultimate realization that Jews can no longer fit into Western culture and therefore, we have to go and create our own place, our own land, our own civilization. In fact, and this is a very strange way of putting it, but it's been put by other historians, particularly Jacob Katz, 
Zionists uh, and the anti-Semites shared the same common notion. Anti-Semites also believed that Jews did not fit in, they were alien. So in some respects, the Zionists were carrying out a task that the anti-Semites wanted to carry them out, to get rid of the Jews, to get them out. Uh, of course, the Zionists thought in terms of obviously the betterment of the Jewish situation, the anti-Semites thought otherwise. But nevertheless, it is ultimately an agreement between this, these hostile forces uh, and, and the Zionist predicament, the Zionist uh, solution to the Jewish problem by removing the Jew from Western culture. A recognition that, as uh, Leon Pinsker put it, uh, Jewish cult uh, European culture is shaped by Judophobia. You can listen to all the great music, you know, the Bach and the Mozart, but also Wagner, and you will hear anti-Jewish tones in that. That Western culture is saturated with anti-Semitism. That it is a plague that can never go away, no how educated you are. In other words, on that level, there is really no hope for European culture except to get out. And that clearly was a stream of Zionist thinking uh, and uh, what shaped uh, the works of Pinsker and Herzl. There were two other solutions, and I will mention them tonight. W one is socialism, uh, and I'm not going to say a word about socialism right now. Uh, if you want to hear more about socialism, we can speak about that. I'm speaking about Jewish socialism. I'm speaking about the involvement of Jews in socialist political parties, uh, in the Communist Party, in the Bund. Uh, the history of Yiddish culture is saturated with, uh, with socialist dreams, um, and, and of course, socialist Zionism, which is a labor, socialist Zionism, same word, labor Zionism, right, same idea, uh, which emerges, of course, as a kind of fusion of Zionist thought with socialist thought. So more about that tonight. Um, the third solution to dealing, of course, is a non-ideological solution, but nevertheless reflects the overwhelming majority of Jews, and that is to use their feet and get out. Not because they had thought through the ideology of, of how to deal with this, but simply fleeing. So what we are speaking about after 1881-82, as you well know, is a mass migration of Jews from east to west, first to Western Europe, and then finally uh, to uh, America. And between 1880, roughly, and 1920, until laws of closing down the borders uh, were initiated, uh, millions of Jews made their way to the American shore. So while we have an American Jewish history that goes back to the 17th century, clearly the most important stage in that history came about only at the end of the 19th and 20th century. Zionism by its very nature, is paradoxical in a certain way. Or maybe a better word to use is it is dialectic. It, it, it is aspiring for two things simultaneously. On the one hand, Zionism emerges in Europe because of 19th century nationalism. And I say that both in a negative and a positive sense. In a positive sense, clearly Zionist thinkers understood now the notion of what a nation state meant and what nationalistic ideologies were all about. And clearly in some respects, particularly the more progressive nationalist ideologies, like Mazzini in Italy, for example, uh, they wanted to imitate them. The idea of redefining Judaism along national state lines was something they drew from 19th century nationalism. At the same time, many of the nationalisms of the 19th century, as we've said, 
were tinged with anti-Semitism and hostility uh, against the alien. And therefore, in these exclusive nationalist ideologies, Jews came up with the idea that having their own would offer them self-protection and self-preservation uh, as they entered their uncertain future. On the, so what we are speaking about on the one hand, and here is the paradox, is normalcy. Jews need to be like everyone else by redefining who we are in such a way that it is compatible with the ideologies of the 19th century. To be another nationalistic movement, a Jewish nationalistic movement, one was to normalize the abnormal conditions of Jewish life by creating the conditions of a nation state and therefore to fit into the larger family of nations. Even if it meant removing oneself, essentially the goal of Zionism was normalcy, a normal state with normal borders, with normal military, with normal police force. In other words, by creating those conditions of Jewish life, anti-Semitism would go away and Jews would not feel alien and unappreciated and a sense of a lack of belonging. They would now belong to the larger community of nations. On the other hand, Zionism is also a plea for abnormality. Is a plea, it, it, it draws on the past and the messianic dream. Here's where our lectures overlap between now and, uh, and, and tonight. Um, it is indeed a secularized form of messianism. It asserts singularity, it, it asserts uniqueness, it asserts fulfilling the Jewish task. It is part and parcel of a Jewish dream that goes back ever since Jews have been exiled from their land and forced to return. It links up with traditional values about returning to Israel, about living in Israel, about preserving mitzvot in Israel, etc., etc. So it is both. It is both an assertion of uniqueness and also an assertion of normalcy at the same time. To be normal, to be unique. Can you be both? Or can you be you know, like everyone else and at the same time be Jewish? That is a paradox, all right? I think if, in a nutshell, uh, the strains and tensions and challenges of Jewish life can be encapsulated in that paradox. In other words, Zionism was both, and we'll see already in just a minute as I present these thinkers, two different ideological positions which come exactly out of the strain that I'm speaking about. I could add another paradox as well, and here's where I'm gonna sort of close my introduction in Zionism and then turn to the thinkers. And that is that within the vision of Zionism, there were clearly at least two strains. In other words, what I'm trying to do is present to you a pantheon of responses. There is no one Zionism. There were many Zionisms, many images, many utopias out there in terms of what the Jewish state was to be. And each had their own blueprint and then tried to put them all, map them all into the, the present state of Israel. And you see it's not so simple, right? Uh, Zionism is therefore brought together under its roof uh, with the great fear of anti-Semitism and the urgency of the Holocaust to rebuild the Jewish state. But clearly the, 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 the disparate visions of that state would continue to uh, challenge uh, and plague those who were trying to create a, a, uni a unified response to what it mean meant to create a Jewish state. There was never, uh, as expressed within the political parties of Israel, uh, as what expressed in the political uh, 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 the politics of today, uh, these 
ideological differences emerge already in the 19th century. So the second paradox is a paradox between the Jew as a builder of the great society, the utopian socialist, creative response here where I could mention people like A.D. Gordon, Bear Borchov, David Ben-Gurion, Martin Buber, to create a social laboratory of human relationships, to create this ideal world, this Garden of Eden, uh, this light unto the nations, to use the language of traditional messianic thought. The Jew as a builder, perhaps, might be a way of expressing it, of the good utopian society. But there is also another image which was equally important and imaginative uh, and arose within the context of Zionist thought. And that is the Jew as the fighter. Don't take for granted that that image was always within Jewish history. The Jew was always a victim that could be pushed around. The Jew had his means of protecting himself. But the notion of a Jew with an Uzi automatic is a very new image. Uh, there were Jews who dreamed about uh, military uh, might. Uh, I could think of uh, Samuel Hanagid in medieval Spain, or I could think of the Jewish thinkers of uh, the Renaissance that wrote about military thought and armies, uh, remembering the armies of the biblical past and so on. But clearly the notion of a Jew who defends his own rights, that is not pushed around, who is no longer victimized, is a very new image. It is also the image of Zionism. Uh, it is the image of individuals uh, such as uh, Jabotinsky or Berdyshevsky or Max Nordau. Uh, it is what Max Nordau called the Muskeljuden, Muskeljuden, the muscular Jew. Uh, not the yeshiva pimply little boy, right, that is going and sitting over, but a muscular Jew. That, that whole notion is, is a, a kind of revolution in Jewish thought. Uh, but indeed, we now have our muscular Jews, uh, and we have our army, and we defend our own rights, and we are the strongest uh, in the world. Uh, so clearly, I'm not suggesting that the Jew as a builder and the Jew as a fighter always need to be at loggerheads with each other. But there are times when they are in tension with each other. Uh, and they are certainly reflected in, in, the, in the political scene, which ultimately emerged out of these various Zionist ideologies. In any case, uh, what we are looking at is Zionism as an embodiment of liberal secular values on the one hand, shaped by Western liberalism uh, in Western Europe and America, versus a notion of an exclusively Jewish state fulfilling Jewish cultural and spiritual needs. This, of course, is the problem which we still are challenged with, uh, how to be democratic and Jewish at the same time. I will certainly not try to resolve that question, but I simply pose it as a question of modern Jewish thought and a question that is particularly relevant when speaking about notions of what the Jewish state should be and what does it mean uh, to be a light unto the nations uh, and in one's relationship with the larger world. Um, I could go on and talk more about Zionism, but I think I'm going to cut it at this point. I'm gonna come back to Zionism uh, tonight for those of you who will be there. Let me turn directly to the thinkers at hand. So what I chose is a sampling of three thinkers, two of them, as I said, not very well known, but I think interesting. Uh, unlike last night where you, some of you felt I was very personal, I was, and I do have a strong feeling for Martin Buber, uh, I'm not sure any of the three uh, uh, 
are personal uh, 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 figures for me that I necessarily relate to, but I chose them purely for their pedagogic value. It seems to me that they raise certain questions about our own relationship to Israel, Zionism, and Judaism, and therefore they are relevant. Um, I'm going to speak about a Chadam who lived from 1856 to 1927. I'm going to speak about Jacob Klatskin, who lived from 1882 to 1948. And I'm going to speak about Louis Brandeis, 1856 to 1941. I like to give dates so you have a, a sense. And then you can just Wikipedia, but you have already a lot of notes by uh, the, the rival to Wikipedia, um, much better, uh, Ari Katz. Um, and you can use his notes, which are, are really quite good. Um, Achadam uh, is the pen name for Asher Hirsch Ginsburg, born in Russia, uh, and the leading proponent of a Zionism called cultural Zionism. Um, he is usually um, placed against um, Theodor Herzl. As the political Zionist, Achadam was the cultural Zionist. That is correct, although they didn't actually debate with each other. But uh, his ideas clearly uh, posed an enormous challenge to Theodor Herzl. Uh, at the Sixth uh, Zionist Congress uh, uh, in 1903, uh, right in the wake of the Kishinev pogrom, pogrom, a very, very, very bad moment uh, in the history of, uh, of Jews living in Russia, um, the, uh, Herzl came with his remarkable proposal to build a Jewish state in Uganda. Um, wouldn't that have been nice? Can you imagine the world uh, today uh, if the Jewish state was in Uganda? I, I don't know. Uh, what was really quite interesting were, well, Haddam was not at this conference, but nevertheless, his students were, uh, his B'nai Moshe, uh, as they were called, and they strongly articulated a position, if it is not Israel, we're not interested, even though we are the ones that are now experiencing the horrible persecution. It is only Israel. If I remember, if I, if I forget the old Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. This is what they told Herzl. And Herzl learned something about the nature of Zionism at that moment, <laughs> that it wasn't simply about a political refuge from persecution and anti-Semitism, but rather there was a need to create a new kind of cultural world. For Achadam, and, and that's the one, I, I gave you a whole bunch of readings which you can look at. Uh, I, I'm not going to read from Achadam today. I want to look at the other two texts. I don't think I have enough time. But let me summarize where Achadam's position is. Achadam criticized other Zionist thinkers who emphasized the political and practical over the spiritual cultural. For him, the latter was critical. If you're going to create a Jewish state, then it has to reflect the need of Judaism today, not simply the Jewish people. What is the future of Judaism? What kind of Jewish culture we will have? Achadam, of course, was unique in his approach. I mentioned him actually in the context of Mordechai Kaplan, if you remember that lecture as well. Kaplan, as we said, was very influenced by Achadam. Achadam was a, a guy who was immersed within the rabbinic culture of Eastern Europe. He knew his Talmud, he knew his Midrashim, uh, he knew his medieval literature. Uh, his essays, which uh, David knows quite well, uh, were written uh, with extraordinary uh, creativity. To read Achad Am uh, is an enormous pleasure in Hebrew. Uh, and actually, it is also simple, elegant Hebrew. 
I'm going to talk about Klatskin in just a moment. Katzkin also wrote remarkable letters and uh, uh, essays in Hebrew, but his Hebrew is much more difficult. Um, uh, uh, and Bialik's essays also, uh, not his poetry, but his essays are, are really uh, challenging. But a Chadam somehow is understandable and can be read quite e uh, easily. Uh, we have a biography by Steve Zipperstein who uh, teaches at, um, uh, at Stanford University, but there are, there are many other biographies that are, are equally uh, significant. Um, a Chadam uh, was a person raised as an Orthodox Jew who gave up his Orthodoxy. How do we speak about spirit and culture without speaking about God? That's the question for a chadam. Uh, I don't know if, if any of us have the same dilemma, but he lived through a world which was secularized where he could no longer daven in a shul, but yet he loved his Talmud and he loved his rabbinic culture and he loved the ideas of Judaism and he felt spiritually uplifted when as a student of Jewish learning and Jewish culture. For him, mass immigration to Israel, as Theodor Herzl had proposed, made no sense. Israel needs to create a cultural center. And this cultural center will be only for the elite, so only intellectuals, only people at the University of Pennsylvania. I don't know about community college people, just University of, in other words, it was supposed to be an elite center, a place where uh, the smartest and the best of our young people would go and there they would create a cultural hub. He never defined what this culture is to be, but he believed by the kind of people that would be attracted to go to Israel, they would create a cultural hope, which would then radiate, or la goyim, radiate like the spokes of a wheel out to the diaspora. In other words, for Achadam, there was always to be a coexistence between diasporic Jewish life, I love to say it as an adjective because it sounds like it's a kind of skin disease, diasporic, doesn't it? Um, I don't know, I, people use that word all the time and I can't stand it, but I just used it now. Anyway, diasporic Jewish existence as opposed to uh, the center in Israel. So center and periphery, center and diaspora. That was the kind of uh, dialectical relationship that would go on. And therefore, the diaspora would be turned on by Israel. Israel would radiate its rays out of Jewish culture, and somehow we would lap them all in, and it would regenerate our own Jewish identity in the diaspora, and thus uh, this relationship uh, would go on and on. He hoped thus for the, the emigration of a, an elite group of intellectuals who would leave their mark on shaping an autonomous Jewish culture. Clearly what we are speaking about uh, is that he was distrustful of the world that he lived in right now. The world of, as he saw it in the end of the 19th century, was a world of great uh, warfare, hostility, anger, the sword. What the Jewish community needed was human dignity, reflecting its own values, spiritual elite, and clearly a culture of the book. This was un something unique about the Jewish spirit that it would never become this hostile kind of national state which was destroying Israel, destroying the, the European civilization. In this period of time, and there were other thinkers like him in the 19th century that could see this dichotomy, it was clearly part of their context. There was this Gentile world out there of hostility and hatred and antagonism and there was the love and beauty that came out of Judaism. The Jewish people of the book, therefore, needed to preserve that culture. 
He created a group called B'nai Moshe that I've mentioned and also a group uh, uh, of followers uh, who call themselves Chibatzion, the love of Zion. And they believe that in preparing the heart, they would ultimately bring back a kind of cultural revival, first among themselves and then ultimately within Israel. The problem, of course, in, in, with the Chada'am is the notion of what do we mean by a Jewish spirit? Moreover, how do we convey that Jewish spirit to the next generation and the next generation? That's always the problem. That is the problem for us today. Clearly, for Chada'am, rather than speak about God, he spoke about moral power. He spoke about the authenticity of the, of the Ten Commandments. He spoke about the Musar of Judaism. Jews, he knew innately, were good human beings. And the good was cultivated with their, their own tradition. And therefore, they needed to present a force to the universe as a whole in this very hostile climate of antagonism between the forces of good and the forces of bad. But the problem, of course, is defining a moral power. And as you will see in a second with Klatskin, his major antagonist, if moral power is to have meaning, it cannot be limited to one particular group. Morality, by its very nature, is universal. All people need to embrace and love each other. How can we somehow appeal to moral power as the unique factor of Jewish civilization? Are we the only moral force within the universe? Do we not expect other people to be as moral? Uh, and of course, if one were to push him, so what is unique about the Jewish people? He would again say moral power, and he would say it is admitted by everyone. The Jewish people is unique for its genius of morality. Of course, Reformed Jews, Conservative Jews, Orthodox Jews had argued uh, similar ways, particularly Reformed Judaism, as we saw in the case of Geiger. But it is usually left unexplained how Jewish morality, or doing the right thing, or our Ten Commandments, are so different from the commandments of other peoples, of other communities. Human dignity, of course, knowing the reality on the ground, he felt it. It was part of his, he didn't need to talk about God and mitzvot and ceremonial. He knew that ultimately, by studying Judaism, by immersing oneself in Jewish culture, by living the Jewish life in a kind of secular way, he was preserving the moral power of Judaism. So exactly what do we have here? Uh, Zionism is to solve this spiritual problem in Israel. Uh, Judaism in its traditional form is lifeless, but it will be regenerated in the land of Israel. The spiritual center would nourish the Jews of the diaspora by providing a direction and inspiration. Uh, all of this is very nice. But clearly, a clear definition of what this means. Uh, if Ahad Am was pushed against the world, he would simply say, uh, we will define that spiritual power more precisely by that elite who will be living in Israel. And we will understand what it means to be Jewish in the next generation as well. But clearly, right now, it is enough to understand that we stand against the 19th century nationalisms rooted in power. There is a unique genius of the Jewish people a hatred of the sword and a love of the book, an alienation from power politics, but clearly speaking about God is not possible. So as Hertzberg called the Chada'am, he is the agnostic rabbi. Uh, sometimes I call myself that as well, but no, we're not talking about me, we're talking about a Chada'am. 
in any case, uh, or a lot of rabbis who I've met, not just uh, me, but in any case, they won't admit that. But, uh, but here we have a, a per wonderful dilemma of the modern Jewish thinker, the person who knows that there is something spiritual in Judaism, but sim simply can't utter the words of God. Perhaps our generation is different. When you think about our generation, at least from the students that I have in class, uh, God is not an issue. Um, there is a major donor, I might have mentioned him in passing, um, uh, Felix Posen, who has injected millions of dollars into, secular, into the campus to teach secular Judaism. But I plead with him, I sit down with him, he says, are you sure that this generation of kids are really that averse to the idea of God? Maybe that was your generation. That is certainly the generation of Ahadam. They couldn't talk about God. This was secular Judaism. But is secular Judaism still as powerful a force in our post-rational age as it was then? It's the same question I ask about the relevancy of Mordechai Kaplan's philosophy. Um, uh, clearly, university college, university synagogue, sorry, university college is, is in London. University synagogue in Irvine, the reconstructionist synagogue, has moved far beyond Mordechai Kaplan. In, uh, as I watched the rabbi dance around on Friday night and so on, uh, that wasn't uh, Kaplan's philosophy in the 1930s. Uh, so, we, so clearly, when we look at Haram here, Yes, yes, yes. Morde oh, wait, you're talking about Mordechai Kaplan. Yeah, yeah I'm, well, Ahad Am did not make Aliyah, um, but ne nevertheless, uh, his disciples went, and they he tried a, to build. He had a house on Recho, or next to Gimnasium. Oh, so he made it. He made it in the end. You're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. right. Okay, you finally corrected me. Okay, I, I admit. All right, good. Um, so postponing the definition of Jewish identity, uh, the Jewish ethic until a spiritual center was in place, but of course, what kind of spiritual center and how do we define it? And that, of course, is the amb ambiguity of uh, Achadam. Now let me talk about Jacob Klatskin, his chief critic. Klatskin is more or less a forgotten scholar, uh, a forgotten thinker, except for scholars who know Klatskin's work. Um, just recently, uh, Klatskin was a great scholar. He was the first editor of the Jewish Encyclopedia in Berlin. Um, he wrote a work on philosophical terms in medieval Hebrew, uh, which is now being revised online and brought up to date. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, you really have to know. I mean, this was a guy that knew Hebrew uh, as well as Achad Am, knew uh, Jewish sources, uh, and in many respects was one of the most profound Jewish thinkers of his generation. But Klatskin's view of Zionism was radically different from Achad Am. For Klatskin, the only goal of Zionism is to regain the land of Israel and to normalize the people living here, okay? Remember my paradox between normalcy and abnormalcy, right? Here it is reflected in the world. Although Achadam is a secular thinker, he is very much an heir of those messianic impulses of returning to build the great society, the light unto the nations, not Klatskin. Klatskin, as Arthur Hertzberg once put it, was the first important Zionist thinker to affirm that a third-rate, normal national state and culture were enough. Klatskin objected to the notion of a spiritual center or of a unique spirituality for Jews, of possessing a divine or secular destiny or mission. All of this, he claimed, was the mark of a diseased, mental, a, a di diseased mentality of an abnormal nation. In other words, we think of ourselves, yes? Are we talking about 
late 19th and early 20th century. He died in 1948. I, I'll tell you how he died in just a second. But he lived at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. So he was a little younger than the Chadam, but clearly his remarks were directed against the Chadam. Klatskin excoriated the Chadam for the notion that morality was the key to Israel's uniqueness. The power of an ethic, as we said, is to transcend national boundaries, to become universal and not to remain the possession of one particular people. And therefore, the spiritual definition of Judaism, as Achadam had defined it, denied the freedom of thought and led ultimately not to a higher spiritual level, but to national chauvinism. Interesting here, those of you that were with me last night when we read Hebrew humanism of Buber, he is also objecting to what he called national egoism, right? But he would have been much more close to the definition of a chadam, even though he spoke about God. He wasn't, he wasn't afraid to speak about God. Both of them saw Israel as a kind of spiritual center. So in both cases, Klatskin would have objected to each. Klatskin is the true liberal, pointing out the contradictions in a chadam's position, but making, uh, 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 for making a compelling argument for Jewish continuity. The only goal for Jews is normalcy and being like everyone else. The other point about Klatskin, which is relevant, is Shlilat HaGalut. The translation? Negation, Negation of the diaspora. Klatskin believed that there was no future for Jewish life. Notice how Acharam had argued that Jewish life in the diaspora in Orange County would survive for two reasons, for Ari Katz and also for, uh, for Israel, which would be a light and would shine on, uh, on itself. Um, for Klatskin, there was no future for Jewish life in the diaspora. It, they were, Jews were alien. Jews would either die from assimilation or from anti-Semitism. And therefore, the only future for Jews were to make Aliyah en masse. However, you know, uh, Jewish thought and Jewish thinkers, when you line them up, they don't always live out their goals. Guess where um, Klatskin died in 1948? Now, this one, I'm right. <laughs> New York. Uh, that was his Jewish. Uh, in other words, he never made Aliyah. Um, I think he might have been in Israel for a period of time. So uh, uh, s somehow it, it didn't work in terms, but that's uh, irrelevant. In other words, his position was quite clear. Let's get all the Jews to Israel. Let's have Jewish criminals. Let's have Jewish prostitutes. Let's have all that. Let's be normal like every other nation in the world. And then the problems of Jewishness will go away. We'll, and whatever emerges, emerges. I'm a liberal. I, I'm open to anything. I don't have any particular uh, cultural, spiritual agenda to impose on the Jewish people. I simply want Jews to be free. That's the only objective. And of course, to study Hebrew and to do all of those things were part and parcel of his culture. He, again, was an Hebraeus of the first rank. But, and a Jewish encyclopedia. I mean, he was really committed to Jewish culture in a very serious way. But nevertheless, his Zionist ideology of normalcy clearly stood in sharp contrast. But nevertheless, I guess reflected certainly uh, the opinion of uh, lots of Jews who live on Dizengorf uh, Boulevard in Tel Aviv, no? Uh, you know, in other words, clearly that tension between normalcy and abnormalcy can still, is still reflected uh, in, 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 the, in the various Israels that we, we do see in, in, in our own reality. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, Ben-Gurion argued that he was a liberal thinker. He was very much in the mold of, uh, and he got into this extraordinary debate with the great Rabbi Abihel Silver from Cleveland over the issue of Aliyah. Yeah, you guys are not going to survive in the diaspora. You're not going to make it in Orange County. You have to get on the boat. Uh, well, first you have to take a plane, uh, and then uh, and you could take Zim lines, you know, that, that was the, the old uh, Israeli uh, vessels, and make your way to Israel. Um, so clearly, this is the two. Uh, and they are presented side by side, and they offer us already uh, uh, a, a partial picture of both the richness, diversity, and tensions built into Zionist thought. One more thinker. It's one o'clock, and I forgot when I started. A quarter after, so I have to end very soon. But I, 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 this thinker is really relevant, so you're going to give me five more minutes. You, 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 know, you can't fire me now. It's too late. So let me just go on for a um, I won't go on very long, I promise. Um, I can see it in his eyes already. That's well, I know him that, that well, you know, when it's time to end. Um, Louis Brandeis. I, I thought I didn't have enough material for today, but obviously, um, you know, so I just, now I'm wound up. All right, let me just go for five more minutes. Louis Brandeis, of course, the Supreme Court Justice, was not a deep Jewish thinker, but nevertheless, in an essay which is in your reader as well, um, in, written in 1915, when he was elected as the honorary president of the American Zionist Federation, he wrote a very important essay which deals with the subject of dual loyalty. Uh, that, this essay is indeed relevant. It seems to me a blueprint of what American Zionism became from 1915 on to our own day. Zionism for Brandeis was about saving disadvantaged Jews from oppression by providing them their own homeland. Zionism never meant the liquidation of the diaspora, so here he would be very much against Klatskin. On the contrary, a strong Jewish presence in the diaspora could always support the Jewish state politically and financially. Brandeis's greatest contribution to Jewish thought, as we said, is an analysis of the problem of dual loyalty. For Brandeis, Zionism, and of course Brandeis giving this speech in 1915, he was the quintessential American. So for him to say this, the, uh, th this meant a great deal in terms of legitimating the notion that Jews would show their uh, affiliation or their loyalty to a, a land outside of the American borders. For Brandeis, Zionism never required American Jews to immigrate to Israel since America provided them a haven for persecution. Zionism was always for the disadvantaged Jewish other. It was for those poor, impoverished Jews from North Africa or from Eastern Europe uh, or from the Middle East uh, who were clearly in need of a haven for, from persecution. American Jews were not unloyal to America by supporting Israel. By supporting their unprivileged co-religionists, they were doing the American thing by supporting the needy. In other words, notice how he is framing it here. When we do our Zionist thing, we are contributing to our American culture. America, uh, at, at least up until the present, has always thought itself as being, uh, sorry, no politics, um, uh, has always thought of itself as caring about the world, as, as, as giving to the needy, of supporting. We are the great charitable base of, of, of human civilization. We need to support the underprivileged, the people who are in need. And thus, doing our Jewish thing coincides exactly with our American thing. We are wonderful Jews and we are wonderful Americans by supporting the underprivileged who are trying to create the land of Israel. 
Clearly, American Jews uh, are not only better Jews, but better Americans in their support for a Jewish state in Palestine, wrote Brandeis. And I won't, you can read the essay yourself because that's basically uh, his language. Brandeis's understanding of Zionism became emblematic for many American Jews who supported Israel primarily through financial contributions. I would call this without disparaging it in the very least, checkbook Zionism. Uh, clearly our own notion of giving, of tzedakah, of supporting, of defining our own Jewish identity by how large our check is, is very much ingrained uh, in American Jewish culture. Jewish philanthropy, of course, has a long history before the American shores, but it never reached these heights. Uh, and it clearly blended in beautifully, as Brandeis described it, with our own role uh, as, uh, as uh, an Americans who are giving to the world. Uh, thus, um, the idea of our American kids, our own kids and children making Aliyah and going to live in Israel was hardly ever raised. Nor was it ever a possibility that American interests and Israeli interests would somehow, might conflict potentially. Uh, in other words, as our world changes and we try to grasp the reality we are living through uh, now or in recent years, uh, these questions which were totally not even theoretical for Brandeis uh, have proved to uh, offer new challenges and new reflections on the reality described. So placing Brandeis here at the end of these three thinkers offers another alternative view, all right, of how Zionism emerged. And clearly, the American part is significant. Uh, it not only contributed materially to the rise of the State of Israel, but also politically. Uh, this particular group, which Brandeis founded or was one of the founders, clearly uh, became uh, the, the precursor of a very powerful movement of Jews who shifted uh, to the Zionist movement by the 30s and the 40s uh, and had enormous impact upon the shaping of the Jewish state uh, and ultimately a large number of Americans going to live in Israel. So let me bring this to a close by simply saying uh, that Zionism uh, as a part of Jewish history uh, is a vital dimension of the modern experience. Uh, it has had implications upon Jewish life through the 19th century it provides us with, uh, with richness, with the extraordinary achievement of the creation of a Jewish state. Um, it provides us with uh, avenues to affirm and to reaffirm our Jewish identity. Uh, it also offers challenges, and these challenges and these complexities and these fissures uh, already emerge within Zionist thought of the 19th century. In other words, the diversity of opinions, the diversity of approaches. This was to be a Jewish state but what do we actually mean by a Jewish state? What kind of Jewish culture? What kind of Jewish civilization? What kind of role will it play in the world? What kind of democratic or undemocratic state it will be? All these questions, of course, we still try to understand and make sense of, um, but uh, my role as an historian has, at least on this subject, has come to an end, uh, and you will figure out our present and our future. Thank you. So uh, this will be continued, of course, tonight in another fr uh, framework. I go back to the messianism theme, but uh, go right now, yeah. Uh, none of these see Judaism or Israel as a place where um, halacha would be central to the 
Thank or you. enforcing halacha would be simple. Yeah, okay. So I did leave out religious Zionism. Um, religious Zionism. Uh, I, I, yes, and I could have talked about Avram Kook. Uh, I could have just spoke about uh, Rhymus, a whole group of rabbis. There's a whole wonderful section in uh, Hertzberg's book. Um, and clearly, that is also important. In other words, if I was presenting a full panorama, I, I should have. I, I, I got in Herzl and Achad Am and, 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 and Pinsker, but, but I did leave that out. I'm glad that you mentioned that. It was absolutely critical. The closest I got to it was Martin Buber last night in terms of his vision of Judaism in Israel is obviously a religious vision, but we, absent the, halachak, the halachic part. In other words, the notion that the, the Jewish law could be reenacted and creating a kind of theocracy in Israel. That was certainly a, a, a vital vision. Now that evolves over time. Originally, a large segment of the Orthodox Jewish community uh, is opposed to Zionism. Uh, if you want to look at the precursors of the traditional Zionist view, look at uh, Alkali and Kalisher. These were two individuals who were the first Orthodox rabbis to write in favor of Zionism. They are also found in the Zionist idea. And you can see as they present the notion of Reshit de Geula, the beginning of redemption in Israel, they were going against an Orthodox Jewish community uh, that was reluctant to go to Israel until God brought them through Messianic redemption. Uh, but clearly, you are absolutely right that if I were to fill out the panorama of Zionist thinkers, Clearly, the, the religious Zionist pers perspective is, is absolutely critical, uh, with you know, left-wing socialist views on this side and, uh, and, and those on the other side. And all of them, again, imagining this Jewish vision, this Jewish state, uh, but each of them having a different idea of what it actually looked like. Uh, yes? In America, did the, sun, you know, the, Irish, the Irish people who uh, supported Ireland and the Italians, did that parallel the Jewish experience? Absolutely. Uh, one of the great thinkers to pose the idea of a melting pot theory in American culture was Horace Callan, himself a very important Jewish thinker, a very important influence on Louis Brandeis. They were all part of the same circle. So the notion that indeed every minority supports its homeland and so on was clearly part of that vision. In other words, we become better Americans by somehow underscoring our own ethnic identity and playing it out, particularly in a philanthropic way. Uh, so clearly that was an idea that, that had parallels in other minority cultures as well. And it was approved? It was seen as a... a yeah, no, it became part of this American dream. Uh, uh, and of course, American Zionism thus grew and flourished, uh, uh, partially because of Brandeis' uh, imprentor. Uh, okay, starting over here, so, yeah. Uh, to, to what extent did these writers, or did the, did the movement anticipate or plan for the reality that they ultimately encountered in Israel with the need to reoccupy, clear, and hold the land? Okay, now you're touching on, uh, on borderline here for me is where I'm going to get into. Uh, obviously, um, no one could anticipate what happened after 1967 uh, and the War of 67. Uh, and in many respects, that um, the, the reality changed, and uh, Israel became a larger Israel. Um, I won't go any farther than that, uh, except to say that none of them anticipated. And in fact, I could even make a more general point. Notice how each of these thinkers is defining the state in terms of Jewish needs. It's not that they're anti-Arab or they're they're just they're not aware of 
the indigenous populations that were there. It wasn't an issue. You could say it emerged, you know, as a result of, as the, as the Zionists moved in, the Arabs became aware of their own national identity and so on. Be that as it may, the notion of Palestinian and so on, I won't, I'm not going to go into that when that begins or, and, and so on and so forth. But clearly, it's pretty hard to find among any of these thinkers, with the exception of Martin Buber, perhaps, um, and his particular group, the Ichud. Uh, another uh, thinker of really interesting is Judah Magnus. I don't know if you ever studied him. Uh, Judah Magnus was a reform rabbi who became a Zionist, like Abihilal Silver, uh, but became uh, a partner with uh, Martin Buber in creating uh, this particular notion Shalom. of a binational state. Magnus was the first president of the Hebrew University. Um, so were they, were, they were aware of... in the reform movement anti-Israel? Exactly. They really went, they went against the grain, totally. I mean, Abba Hillel Silver and Judah Magnus were way before their time. But of course, in the 1940s, there was a big, there was a big fight within the reform movement, uh, and a group broke off in 1943. Uh, uh, the American Reform Rabbinate uh, supported uh, the state of Israel, uh, and uh, the American Council for Judaism, made up of many reform rabbis, broke off from the reform movement and went their own way. In other words, they denied Zionism, but clearly by this time, the majority of reform rabbis were in full support. But clearly, when you speak about Magnus and Abel Silver, you're speaking about people that really stood out within uh, the history of, of Zionism, uh, and clearly they were a minority at the time. But of course, you know, today, uh, uh, reform Judaism supports Zionism as much as any other uh, uh, individual group. So it's not that they were, they, they were essentially consumed with their own problems as Jews, and, and rightfully so. I mean, this was during the Holocaust, particularly as the Holocaust uh, you know, went across uh, Europe and so on. Uh, the only concern was to save Jew, Jewish life and, and to preserve Judaism. Um, and therefore, uh, uh, you know, it, it is one of the ironies of history that you know, at, a, at, the, at a period where nationalism had Jews discover their own nation state right at a time when the Arab world is also changing. Uh, the timing was, was very complicated here. Uh, and thus, they were not aware of the implications of what happened later on. I mean, that's the long, the, the, the short answer, yes. I just want to say that um, pre-World War II, the, uh, we were very much aware of it in Manhattan because the Bundes on 86, East 86 were marching. Yes. I'm going to talk about Bund tonight, actually, um, Bundes. Uh, and uh, Shalom Aleichem schools and that particular ideology. In other words, Zionism was one, one of many ideologies emerging in the first, so, so clearly there was tension within the Jewish community. There was also a segment of the Orthodox Jewish community, uh, particularly the Satmer Hasidim, who are still opposed uh, to, uh, to the notion of Zionism. Uh, but of course the overwhelming majority of Jews uh, were, became Zionist, and clearly, the creation of a Jewish state of Israel served the entire Jewish people. But nevertheless, uh, as you see, these thinkers raise questions uh, that in many respects we are still grappling with. Now, he's standing up here, so that means we are coming to an end. Uh, can I take one more question, or we should, we should end? Uh, well, because I want to end on, on noting this. Uh, many people have noticed the polls and how different uh, ages um, in the pupil what their relationship to Israel is, and that people under the age of like 25, I think, the, the people who, who feel they have a strong, it's like 30% of that population, whereas if, as you get older, people have a strong relationship to Israel. So what's interesting to me about Zionism, and some of the people that we've heard, is that 
there were many different opinions as to um, why Jews may want to go back and, and how they should go back to reestablish the homeland. However, depending on where you live and what age you are right now, you have either consciously or probably unconsciously or subconsciously affiliated yourself with one of these or one of the other opinions. And when you argue with someone, you don't realize that they're from a different generation and they either they, they don't subscribe to the same ideology that you do. So when I talk to my, I can't talk to my parents about Israel because their ideology is completely different. They grew up and they lived through, uh, you know, 48 or certainly 67. I did not. Um, I can't talk to Israelis. We had a bunch of Israelis recently, you know, Haredim and secular. It was, a, it was a meeting up in Beverly Hills and I got to sit down with settlers and, 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 and Haredim. And they look at me like they, we just do not talk the same language. And then the young people, so my kids, they don't, they don't talk my language either. So I don't know. I mean, we're never going to find an answer because we are all talking in a different language. We don't understand each other. But at least you've elucidated. But the state got created by an ideology. It didn't. It got, it got created by ideologies. And so what we have in Israel. But there was a Ben Gurion. I know, but Ben Gurion, I think, sold it. He basically sold a bill of goods to everybody. So he would, he, probably his genius is my guess. And you know these people because they built TBT or they built your shul, is they know they could look at Ed and say, I know what Ed's ideology is. Ed, I need your money because we want a place for this. I know your ideology. We're going to, you know what? Don't worry because if you're religious, we're going to give the religious stuff over to you so you can then control <laughs> marriages and divorces. You don't worry because we're going to have kibbutzim so you have socialism. You don't, I mean, so, you know, Israel is, is really, you know, you see it in ideologies. Let me ask two quick comments to his comments. Uh, you know, that's the Jewish way. We interpret upon interpretation. I've said that throughout these lectures. So, <clears throat> two very quick comments. Um, so, <clears throat> you're absolutely right. There, uh, there, we all have very differing opinions. But <clears throat> what I tried to do, <clears throat> at least in a very small way today, was to indicate that there is a, that there is a history here. There is a, uh, there's a genesis of all of this and that we can better appreciate where we ended up by looking back at its very beginnings to see that uh, <clears throat> the enterprise was already fraught with controversy and, and diversity uh, ever uh, since, since its beginnings. The second point, which is uh, unbelievable, I mean, when I teach this to uh, 18 to 20 year olds at Penn, that, you're right, they never lived through Israel. Um, for many of them, uh, they have absorbed a very negative image of, of Israel uh, in today's news. Uh, and they have no sense of what we're talking about here. Uh, it's like educating for them for the first time. So we do face uh, a remarkable gap in terms, a generational gap, uh, our appreciation of Israel. I mean, that, that's sort of, you know, I was, when I, was, I was alluding to that with the Chadam. I mean, he was absolutely sure that he could preserve Judaism in Israel because he was living through it. It was part of his cultural world. He was living in an Eastern European world where everybody was Jewish, everybody spoke Hebrew, everybody could speak in Yiddish, and so on. Uh, and we assume that that kind of background in education will go on, and it doesn't. Uh, so, of course, that is our challenge. Um, we need a, a school like this for 16-year-olds. Uh, for we need to get, we get them. Well, I, I, th I think we need a, uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say Zionism in the modern, postmodern world needs some new thinkers because these thinkers are great. And maybe we have to build on these thinkers and revitalize because some of the things you, that you said will resonate now but in different ways, different words. 
But uh, without some, without right. without people rethinking like Beacon Goodman, who we've had right, here, right, I think right, is doing right, it. Right, right. Um, Zionism is, I would say, almost completely irrelevant to the younger generation, and I understand why. So, uh, on that happy note, <laughs> <laughs> have a great day. We'll see you tonight and tomorrow night. Thank you.